We return this week to uh, the book of Micah, and our scripture reading is from Micah chapter 4. If you'd like to start turning there, that's about, uh, that's where I'll read in a minute. If you're using your own Bible, Micah is toward the back of your Old Testaments, right after a more familiar book to many, the book of, uh, of Jonah. So if you find Jonah, it's right after Jonah. If you don't have a Bible with you and you want to follow along, you're welcome to use one of the blue Bibles that are in the chair racks, and you can find Micah 4 on page 988. Now, before I read this, it might be useful to do a little bit of a quick reorientation, as much for me, perhaps, as for you, for those who haven't been here this Summer, we've been in the book of Micah, but even if you have been here uh, this summer, it's been a couple of weeks. I was away on vacation, so it's been a couple of weeks since we've been here. So let's ask ourselves, remind ourselves, who is this guy Micah again, and what's he doing? What's he doing? Well, Micah was a a prophet from a small Judean town uh, called Moresheth. That's about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem, and that's where he came from, and he ministered for at least 20 to 25 years during the reigns of three kings of Judah, three Judean kings that are all listed in verse 1 of chapter 1. Their names were Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah. It was during their reigns that Micah prophesied. And he lived during a particularly important time in the history of God's people. You remember that God's kingdom had been split after the reign of King Solomon, split into two different kingdoms, two separate nations, a northern kingdom that's often referred to as Israel, and a southern kingdom that was often referred to as Judah. And Micah lived in the southern kingdom of Judah, but he lived during the time when the northern kingdom of Israel fell to the invading Assyrian armies in 722 BC. And so some of the book of Micah is a warning to Israel ahead of its destruction, but a lot of it is also directed to Judah, saying to Judah, look, a similar fate is going to happen to you if you persist in your rebellion against God's law. And if we were here, you know that we've seen in the first three chapters of Micah that exact thing. We've seen chapters one and two, Micah warning the people of God that there is injustice that is happening in the land and that that God's law is being ignored. And so in chapter 3, God goes and he says, I'm going to hold responsible those who are responsible for this, the leaders from all branches of authority in Judah, the the prophets, the the priests, the, the civic rulers. He's going to hold them all accountable for the injustice that is happening. And then at the end of chapter 3, he reiterates in fairly clear language that's hard to misunderstand his displeasure with all the injustice and with the sin in the nation. And he says, I'm going to ultimately bring to destruction because of this, just like happened in the northern kingdom of Israel, I'm going to bring Jerusalem and Judah to, destru- to destruction as well. Which brings us to chapter 4, which as we read, you'll see is a hopeful contrast to that promise of God's judgment, but they're linked and they're connected and we hope to to see that. So that's a little bit of the background, reminding us of where we've been. Let me invite you to stand then as I read today's text. We typically do this as, a, as an indication of respect that this is God speaking to us. And when I'm done, I'm going to make the declaration that this is the word of the Lord and invite you to respond by saying, Thanks be to God. This is Micah chapter 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. 
And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and every man under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall, shall it come. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples, and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So where, where are you going? In other words, what is the trajectory of your life? Or even more broadly, what is the trajectory of human history? It matters where you're going. Whether you're experiencing struggle in this world right now, maybe that's true of you. Maybe your race is, is hard and it's labored. You're experiencing sickness and grief and conflict. And you're wondering to yourself, is this going to last? Where is this going? Maybe that's not you. Maybe, relatively speaking, things for you at the moment are going pretty well. Pretty well. You've, you've sort of hit your stride. The race seems easy. Your breath is not labored. Maybe there's not that much to complain about. Maybe life at this point is all beach pics and good meals for your friends to see on Instagram. Maybe that's you. But in the back of your head, you're still wondering, will this last? Where is this going? It doesn't matter your stage of life. Older adults tend to think about what's next, maybe at least stereotypically more as their expected years get fewer, but they're not the only ones who think deeply about where life is going, about what's next after this life is is done. I learned that this week, teaching the Bible for three days to our kids in Calvary Kids Camp. They think about it too, and they think deeply about what's next. And Micah has something to say about that. The immediate context of what I just read is what we just described, a a promised judgment on God's people for their sin, that they will, that that will happen, that it will come as certain as the sun's going to rise, judgment is going to happen in Jerusalem. But the broader context 
that Micah speaks to and that we can apply and hear from this is all of human history because all of us are included here. Because verse 1 grabs our attention when it says, it shall come to pass in the latter days. The latter days. That's an expression that refers to the future beyond the horizon. That's what that means. The future on the other side of what can be seen. So what I want us to do is I want us to take a few moments and I want us this morning to lift our eyes beyond the horizon. I want us to see what at the moment we maybe can't yet see, at least see visibly here. But Micah tells us it's there, the culmination, the, the consummation of all of human history. And I want us to see how we get there. So there's three headings that are printed in your bulletin that I'm going to follow. They're based on the themes that we see in Micah chapter 4, and I hope they'll be helpful. First theme, first bucket heading is prophecy and promise. That's where we're going. The second heading is rebellion and resistance. That's what stands in our way. And the third heading is terror and triumph. That's actually how we get there. So that's where we're going. That's what stands in our way, and that's how we get there. So first heading, where are we going? Prophecy and and promise. This is clearest in verses 1 to 5. Right? Verses 1 to 5 are the poetic picture of God's future kingdom, what will come to pass in the latter days. Now this is language and this is a vision that God gave to the prophet Isaiah as well. If you go to Isaiah chapter 2 verses 1 to 5, you're going to see the language is almost identical to what we see here in Micah chapter 4 verses 1 to 5. A prophetic promise. Now, what is it? What will come to pass? Let's look at some of the imagery that's here. It says in verse 1, it talks about the mountain of the house of the Lord being established as the, the highest of mountains. Now, that's not probably a geographical judgment. There are higher geographical mountains than the physical mountain of Jerusalem. So it's talking about God's house, his mountain, his place of presence. And what it's saying is the highest of all the mountains, is that God's house is going to be the most highly exalted. It will be the most honored. God will get all of the glory that is due to him. And it's going to be established, it's firm, and it's going to be established fixed. Solomon's temple is going to be destroyed. It's going to be wiped away. This temple, this kingdom, on this mountain, is going to last forever. It's going to be fixed. And it says the people will flow to it. Humanity is going to come to worship the one true God from all nations. Now, this is not talking specifically about ethnic Jews who were scattered in exile. This is talking most especially about Gentiles, people from many nations. They're going to flow up the mountain. Now, nothing flows up a mountain naturally. Nothing flows up by itself. It must be drawn. This is, in a sense, what Jesus was talking about Jesus in in, in John chapter 12, when Jesus says that as the ultimate house of God, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Right? God will draw people from all nations up to the most highly exalted, the highest of all mountains. Now, this is importantly not just, this is not some vague notion of global unity where there's no one true God and we all just kind of realize that and come together. Look at verse 2. The nations are coming to the God of Jacob. There is one God. He's Yahweh. He's the God of the covenant. And the way to that holy presence of God, the way to his mountain, the mountain to which everyone will stream, is only through the God of Israel. The peoples, when they come, they want to learn the Lord's ways, it says in verse 2. They want to walk in his paths. Look at verse 5. 
the competing gods of the world, they all, they all compete for, for, uh, for attention. But the true peace, the true beauty of God's kingdom is for those and those alone who walk in the name of the Lord our God. That's the covenant name for God. This is the God of Israel, of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And when that happens, look at the results. Look at what happens. Look at what the kingdom is like. Verse 3, he's going to judge between many peoples. To judge is to, is, is to rule, and God's going to do that. He's going to put all the wrong things right. He's going to make them right again. This is the concern that Micah has had as he's talked about injustice in the land. Things are not happening the way that they are supposed to. There is injustice in the land. Well, God is going to come, and he's going to rule. He's going to judge. He's going to put everything that's wrong right, and he's going to do it perfectly, and he's going to do it forever. And then verse 3. The swords are going to be beaten into plowshares. The spears are going to be turned into pruning hooks. In other words, the soldiers, needed as they might be in a broken world like ours, right? they better learn how to be farmers because that's what it's going to be like. Now, again, this, this doesn't mean that this is necessarily the way that it has to be right now. We live in a broken world, a dangerous world. Swords and spears are sometimes necessary to protect those who are victims of injustice. They are necessary to preserve peace. But in a world where the resources are devoted to destructive capacity and those, those resources are turned into, into things that are, can be used for productive capacity, that's a good thing. That's going to happen someday. That's what's over the horizon. Swords being used for plowshares and for farming, that's a good thing. Then there's a line in verse 4 about every man sitting under his own vine and under his own fig tree. That's a key figure of speech in the Old Testament. You find it in other places as well. For example, in 1 Kings chapter 4, that phrase, every man under his own vine and under his own fig tree, it's used to describe the wealth and the prosperity of Solomon's kingdom. Well, here in the latter days, it's the ultimate fulfillment of that. It's peace and prosperity. It's economic security. It's no longer worrying about whether you will have enough. That's what it will be like in God's kingdom on the other side of the horizon. And it can't be taken away by bullies. No one shall make them afraid, Micah says. That's the world to come. That's the, prof the prophesied promise of a forever kingdom of God where people from the whole world gather under the covenant protection of this God in his presence and they will prosper forever. And it's guaranteed. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. So that's where we're going. That's the prophecy and the promise. Now second, what stands in our way? Heading number two, rebellion and resistance. And you get this from verse six through the end of the chapter because the glorious kingdom wasn't going to be enjoyed perfectly then and it's not going to be enjoyed, it's not being enjoyed even now. And there's two reasons why this glorious kingdom is not experienced in its fullness now by us, right? It's the same reason why the glorious kingdom wasn't experienced in its fullness by the people of Micah's day, even when they repented, right? The rebellion of God's people and the resistance of God's enemies. They were in existence then, they're in existence now. Now, the resistance of God's enemies, that's to be expected. The Assyrians came, they conquered the northern kingdom in 722 B.C., the Babylonians would conquer the southern kingdom in 587 B.C. Jerusalem would fall. They were doing God's work of judgment, but they were not on God's side. They're in the category of verse 5, peoples who walk in the way of their own God, small g, rather than in the way of the Lord. Now, 
That's the resistance of God's enemies. That we can expect. The rebellion of God's people, though, that's particularly disappointing when you think about it. And while, God, while Micah's prophesying here rescue that's going to happen in verse 10 for God's people, the reason they need rescuing is not just because of the resistance of God's enemies, but it is ultimately and, and foundationally because of their own sin, because their rebellion set themselves against God. Now, God will deal with each of these things, which we'll see in the third heading, but these same things stand in our way today. Now, we like to talk more about God's enemies, and there's certainly many in the world in which we live, people who set themselves up against God. We like to talk about that, but let's not forget that it's impossible to build a wall around the good people to keep ourselves all safe and pure, because sin originates not from the bad people out there, but from every single human heart, from all of us. And so everyone moving to your, to your favorite you know, political state, it might help on the margins for a little while, but if you think you're going to outrun sin, forget about it. Because even if you can outrun everyone else, you're never going to be outrun, you're able to outrun yourself. And until that problem can be dealt with, the sin of the human heart, it will always be that way. That's heading number two, resistance and rebellion. That's what stands in the way of the prophesied promise. All right, but how do we get it then? And how will we ever achieve it if that is what stands in the way? Well, heading number three, terror and triumph. Resistance and rebellion, they need to be reckoned with. And there is a reckoning here that's happening. For the enemies of God, certainly we'd expect that. We'd definitely hope for that. Yes, let, let the reckoning happen to those who oppose God. But at the end of verse 11, it prophesies not just that the enemies of God will be gathered as sheaves to the threshing floor. That's talking about God's enemies. But what also stands in our way, remember, is our own rebellion. Not just the resistance of Judah's enemies, but the persistent rebellion of Judah's own people. And before the promise of the latter days, beyond the horizon, before that promise can be realized, there is a period of judgment that's going to have to be faced for the people of God's sin. One of the problems with starting, particularly after taking a couple weeks off, starting today's text with chapter 4, verse 1, is that people can mistakenly think that the triumph of God's promises don't come at a significant cost. It's interesting, because if you actually look, you know, there's places where that house, you know, uh, other pastors around the country that preach on different texts, uh, different uh, websites that catalog sermons and stuff of other pastors. And so I went and looked. You know, there's not nearly as many sermons on Micah 1, 2, and 3. But when you get to 4, the curve starts to go up really high four and five because everyone wants to go to Micah chapter four look swords into plowshares look mountain of the Lord all the people streaming to it but it doesn't come by itself Micah chapter four it comes at the end of chapter three right after chapter three the two are meant to to be read together if you just take Micah 4 by itself, it ignores the fact that not only do terror and triumph exist alongside one another, but one of the Bible's clear themes is that in this sinful and wicked world for which we're responsible, there is no prosperity except on the other side of God's judgment. It's not a matter of having to just accept the bad with the good, oh, they go along with one another. No, the judgment, the, the terror, the bad actually becomes in God's redemption the means by which the eternal glory and the prosperity is accomplished and ushered in. We get to see the triumph only on the other side of the terror. Now we see that in the immediate context of Micah's day. God's people are still going into exile. Micah chapter 3 is still in force. It will still happen. 
Micah chapter 4, verse 10, tells us that God's people, they're going to groan in pain while they're in, because of Babylon. That's, that's what will happen. Now, judgment was delayed a little bit because Hezekiah, one of the kings, repented when they heard Micah's warnings, but, but God's people would continue to rebel. The judgment of Micah 3, it would still come to Babylon, they would go. But, Micah 4.10, there you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you on the other side of, through the judgment. God's justice will not be mocked. Sin must be punished, but there is redemption on the other side. Now, this is exactly what happened. Jerusalem fell in 587. The armies of Babylon, they came in, but God returned them to the land about 50 years later, showed them favor. But see, even that was incomplete, to say the least. The nation never regained the glory of the, the days of Solomon. The people continued to break God's law. So the immediate context of, of Micah 4, that's helpful for us to see judgment and then redemption, but it's really a parable that just points to something greater. A true parable, an historic parable, this, this stuff really happened in Micah's day, but it's a parable that points us to the restoration of the kingdom of God under a forever king who will forever rescue, redeem, and reign. And that's not completely out of Micah's view. It's not as if he was completely unaware of that happening. Right? The latter days to which he's referring can't simply be talking about the return to Jerusalem after the Babylonian exile. It can't be. In fact, that phrase in verse 1, that latter days phrase, the time behind the horizon, beyond the, the, the horizon, that's used a number of times in the Old Testament, closely connected to the coming of the Messiah and the reign of the Messiah. That's what Hosea talks about in Hosea chapter 3. Right? It's what Isaiah has in view specifically when he uses these exact same words from Micah chapter 4. Isaiah talks about the coming Messiah. The swords and the plowshares, they don't get turned into uh, swords and the, and the spears don't get turned into plowshares and pruning hooks because everyone all of a sudden like watches the end of a sappy movie where everyone should get along and they're just changed. That's not how it happens. A conference on world peace isn't going to save us. We need a Messiah. A Messiah who needs to come and usher in these latter days. That's the one to whom Micah is pointing. It's that truth, though, that, it, that, 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 that this salvation only happens after suffering. It's that truth that confuses us. Right, we talked about that actually last week. It's that truth that, that, that confused the Apostle Peter. That's what Pastor Craig was here talking about last week. The Messiah, Jesus, would only achieve his triumph not through the wielding of the spear, but by experiencing the spear himself, by being a suffering Messiah. That triumph comes not on a mountain of glory called Zion. It comes on a hill of shame called Calvary, where Jesus experienced the true judgment that God's people ought to experience in its fullness and redeemed us from the greatest of our enemies. Not a foreign nation like Babylon, but the enemy of ourselves. Rescue from our sinful nature and freedom from its bondage. So what do we do? Now, that's all on the other side of the horizon. That's been secured for us by Jesus. Praise God, right? But, but what do we do now, in this day, in this age? What do we do? when we can't see past the horizon, when our circumstances frustrate us in the, in the midst of the race? Well, there's a couple of things we can do. And let me, just give you, let me just give you a couple. First thing, we wait. We wait expectantly. We wait with hope that there is a day of no more fear, of no more sadness that is awaiting us. 
I talked about this with the, with the kids, the, the, the children at, at kids camp on Thursday, right? Kids, some of you might remember what we were, what we were talking about. Remember, we talked about that day that we're, that we're waiting for, a day when God promises that a new heaven and a new earth is going to come and it's going to replace the brokenness of this world. We read from Revelation 21, verse 4, about how God will wipe away every tear from the eyes of his people. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Kids, do you remember that? We talked about that. And adults don't ever think that the kids don't get it. They get it. They understand what that means. I asked them as we were talking, I said, what would it mean to live in a world like that? If that's what's coming, what would that mean? What would it mean? And they said the, the answers were perfect. They said it would mean there, that there would be no more meanness. That no one would hurt other people. That no one would get hurt. That no one would die. That no one would be sad ever again. One of the girls from a family that we've been praying for over the last year, sitting directly across the circle from me, right ahead of me, looked at me and said, it means I'll get to see my mom again. How wonderful it is to have Revelation chapter 21 and Micah 4 to be able to look into the swollen eyes of a little girl and say, yes, you will. We wait expectantly and with hope. What else do we do? Well, we pursue justice, the injustice that existed in that day, we can pursue it now. We'll talk about this more in coming weeks in Micah chapter 6. It talks specifically about this. We, we, we pursue the kinds of things now, not because we think we have any power to do it ourselves, but because we model the God who cares about wrong in the world in which we live. We proclaim the gospel. We don't just keep this news to ourselves of what's beyond the horizon. We proclaim it. We take the brokenness of this world and in our own way we turn swords into plowshares. Our pursuit of justice in this world, as biblically justified as it might be, it's going to be hollow if we don't show how the gospel connects to it. We're not going to be able to eliminate all the spears, all the swords, but we can show how the terror of the spear has been redeemed for our salvation, how the two connect. This was done actually in 1943. Uh, Douglas MacArthur, General MacArthur, sent 12,000 troops to take a small Indonesian island called Bayak. They didn't uh, think they'd have much resistance. They didn't know that they were about to be ambushed by 11,000 Japanese soldiers who were dug in on the island. It took months to take that small little island. And in June of 1944, a Baptist chaplain, Lieutenant Leon Maltby, arrived to minister to these troops, shell-shocked after months and months of brutal fighting. He had nothing, no supplies. So he built a small chapel, he took what he had, and he used it. And he found a machine shop in the camp, and he made a set of candlesticks from 40-millimeter shells. And he made a cross out of a 90-millimeter shell. And he took 80 50 caliber bullets and he pulled out the lead and he pulled out the gunpowder and he took off the firing caps and he made two trays out of these bullets of communion cups. And he used those communion cups made out of instruments of death to serve the Lord's Supper to his troops, showing them how an instrument of death was redeemed to become the mechanism of life. He was the first Protestant chaplain to go into Japan 
after the end of the war. And he used those bullet communion cups with a Japanese pastor of a small church in a local community to serve with him and show in a tangible way through the Lord's Supper how life comes out of death. They're displayed, these cups, at a veterans museum in Daytona Beach. An inscription reads, the pastor clearly understood the significance of instruments of death becoming symbols of eternal life. Out of the spears he made pruning hooks that pointed to the sacrifice of Jesus. As we pursue reconciliation, as we pursue restoration, as we put those things front and center, we have to make sure that at the very tip of that spear, pun intended, is the ultimate restoration that is found in the blood of Jesus. Spilled in violence, but now used as an instrument of healing. That's what we do. We wait. We pursue justice. We show how that justice connects to the gospel. And finally, we trust in those moments when we can't see, we trust our triumphant Messiah. My old, my old boss at Faith Presbyterian Church in Wilmington, Kevin Kozlowski, always finds the best stories. And I remember him telling this one. In 2012, at the paralytic um, track championship, there was a Brazilian runner. Her name was Teresina Guihermina. Teresina Guihermina was running in the finals of the 100-meter race. Now, Teresina is blind, and blind runners in paralytic competition are permitted to use a guide on the track as they run. The guide can hold the runner's hand and sprint alongside of them. And in 2012, Teresina is in the finals for the 100 meters, and she has her guide. And she runs the race. She runs it with all her effort. She runs it with everything she has. And as she crosses the finish line, a photographer captured the instant of her victory. And it's absolutely amazing photo. It froze forever the expressions on her face and on the face of her guide. And it's the contrast of expressions that makes it such an amazing photo. Because see, on Teresina's face, you see only the struggle, the strain, the pain of the race. She's blind. She doesn't know where the race is. She doesn't know where the line is. She doesn't know when it's going to end. She just knows that she's running. And her face is just one of, of effort and struggle and focus. But her guide, her guide has the most magnificent expression on his face. An expression of joy, an expression of triumph, because his head is thrown back, his eyes are wide open, and his mouth is screaming because her guide can see the line. He knows exactly when they'll cross it, and he knows that they've won. See, in many respects, we can't see the line. It's still for us on the other side of the horizon. But holding our hand is the guide who knows, who's been there, who scouted and mapped the track and who will cling to us, rejoicing in a guaranteed triumph, will cling to us until he leads us across that line. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the message of the gospel that transcends the deafness of our ears because of your Holy Spirit, that works through sound systems and imperfect speakers, and muddled thoughts, and distracted hearts. Lord, penetrate us with your word. 
Help us to see the beauty that is there, the message that transforms, and ultimately the hope that we have as we run the race. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.